In this podcast, I will discuss social media and its impacts on protest and Occupy-based movements. This podcast is informed by networks of outrage and hope. Social movements in the internet age by Spanish sociologist Manuel Castells. three decades. Portland is often thought of as a liberal bastion and a progressive city. However, right under its surface is a history of racism that date back to the founding of the state of Oregon as a white-only state in 1859. As one of my hosts said, Portland is surrounded by Kentucky. According to a recent article in The Atlantic, Portland is the whitest big city in America, with a population that is 72.2% white and only 6.3% African-American. As we drove through North Portland, the signs of gentrification are everywhere. For much of the 20th century, this neighborhood was one of the few places black people could live. As a result of this history, it is no surprise that during the 80s and 90s, the white nationalist movement had a large and violent presence in the city. A group of sharps and other like-minded skidheads and activists drove them underground for over 20 years. But fast forward to 2016, through the advent of social media, alt-right and white nationalism has risen again in Portland. First as online groups, and soon after, mobilized groups that held large, often violent rallies. Castells writes extensively about the Occupy movement in New York City, the initial call to arms and mobilization through online media, and then their ability to communicate and organize on the ground via social media and texting apps. Portland has a strong Occupy movement as well. Occupy Portland used many of those same techniques in their first wave in 2011 and the subsequent occupations, most recently in the summer of 2018. As Castells writes, large protests or Occupy movements are often preceded by a flashpoint, a catalyst for viral outrage. In this case, it was the national outrage at President Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy. Thousands of people mobilized nationally after images streamed through social media and later through mainstream media of families being separated the Mexican border. Sunday, June 17, 2018, Occupy Portland set up a camp at the ICE headquarters and were able to occupy the area for roughly five weeks until the FBI and Portland PD forcibly removed them. Months earlier, a small, little-known, far alt-right organization, Patriot's Prayer, had begun to mobilize resources for their leader, Joey Gibson's Senate campaign. They quickly escalated around this time, and through various social media platforms such as Facebook and 4chan, were able to partner with the violent alt-right nationalist group Proud Boys. As they mobilized and launched violent attacks in Portland, counter-protesters also mobilized, often at first through chats and other mobile communication. Mainstream media often portrayed the counter-protesters as violent and antagonistic. This mirrors much of what Castells found in Spain, New York, and the other movement case studies presented in the case. However, real-time live streaming and other means of documenting the protest often showed a very different picture. For the past year, social media has been utilized for call to arms, recruiting, and communications for both sides of this ever-growing battle. The police were eventually outed by social media and doxing as having helped the alt-right protesters. 
On the flip side, a spat of gay bashing has been caught on video and streamed, leading to arrests. As we will see in my conversation with the leader of one of the Sharp movement, social media and internet has been both a curse and a blessing. But ultimately, ultimately, as Castells also emphasized, protests or occupy-based movements do not have an impact if they do not move from the initial online outrage to a mobilization and develop of networks and eventually into the streets. New York for part two of this podcast. Social movement theorists have shown that many new social movements and organizations are in fact often a resurgence or outgrowth of existing movements that for any number of reasons, such as a new or resurgent grievance, have chosen to become active again. I would argue that for many social movements or activist movements that have lulls or active breaks, social media is an extremely effective tool for remobilizing. Social media and crowdfunding tools also have added a unique and quick way for movements to mobilize resources, both financial and human. For instance, if a crowdfunding attempt were to go viral, it could attract unknown numbers of new recruits. In my next segment, I will speak, be speaking with Frank Fleming, the national president of American Sharp, Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice, also known as AMS. As discussed earlier, Sharp was very active in the 80s and 90s. In response to the new far alt-right administration and the resurgence of white nationalism, homophobia, and an erosion of women's rights, previously unaffiliated skins and anti-fascists came, came together across the nation online to form AMS, an all-inclusive crew. As with all movements discussed in the text, and as the movement grew and the network got stronger, they went to the street for direct action. Most recently, they've run charity events and concerts, provided escort security services at Planned Parenthood nationally, and this month marched at Pride in cities throughout the country, offering security against hate to those who are being threatened as they celebrate their love. Now we will hear from Frank Fleming, National President of American Sharp, as he talks about how social media has had a direct impact on his movement. Start. Name and title, please. Frank Fleming, National President, American Sharp. And briefly, can you tell me how AMS formed in the early days? American Sharp formed around the idea that three individuals had myself and two others to breathe a little bit of life back into the idea of Sharp, which was originally formed in New York uh, in the late 80s. Um, there was a time when the skinhead soul culture took a stance against racism and they got out in the streets and they made their place known and we wanted to revisit that and turn that back into what it was. The other side of that was we wanted to update it and make it for what we are today, which is not just anti-racism, it's for inclusiveness, it's for uh, standing up for anyone who needs help, whether it be people of various sexual orientations or beliefs or, or whatever it may be. And how did you three meet? We actually met online, funnily enough. Um, through various conversations and uh, 
a particular instance kind of brought us all together, and it was actually an argument over what sharp should stand for or whether it should even exist anymore. So do you think social media has changed the movement? Absolutely. Social media has broadened the reach of, of people that it can be. Obviously, everyone's on social media. Everyone has a cell phone. Everyone's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, so it, it reaches a much broader audience. Uh, it's got its good side and its bad side. You know, you get a lot of a lot of people who are interested in, in fashion, but you lack the ability to stand on their beliefs, and you find out that a lot of people you believed in for a long time harbor some pretty shady ideals. Now, what are some of the bad things about trying to build a movement, a national movement online? Well, you know, we were able to do it online with a few simple key ingredients. We happened to know a lot of the same people. Um, and we all have a presence where we are. So we were able to, to actually physically meet individuals and know individuals and speak to individuals and then bring them into this idea, this concept um, of what we wanted to do. The plus side of doing it online was that if I have a friend, I may not know their friends, but if their friends are interested, it's easier to spread information. Okay. Um the other side of being online is that when someone shows interest, you have the opportunity to, to really dig through them. Not, not many people, you know, are very privacy savvy with their social media. Mm-hmm. So you get the opportunity to, to really look into who you're speaking to and who you're trying to meet with. Okay. Now, the next question, we, we talked about this in our first attempt at this, is a little bit about Omar and Facebook Live and sort of the reach of getting the message out the way he did it, which is very different from, I think, how most of the organization is doing things right now. Well, Omar was a very special person. Um, uh, Omar had a, a light. Let's, let's just pretend that, that Omar is a light bulb, okay? And every time he spoke, whether it be in person or on his Facebook Live, it was not just the amount of intelligence he possessed. It was not just how well-spoken he was on the subjects he chose to talk about. It was the absolute passion that he possessed. He put passion into every word he spoke. Um, Omar was able to give a little piece of that light to everyone he met um, and to everyone he reached. So whether they wanted to fully understand it or believe it or not, they each walked away a little brighter. Um, There aren't many people in my experience, I've never come across many people that could captivate people the way that he did. And with his Facebook Live broadcast, you never saw negativity. Even if someone disagreed, it was never in a negative way. It was always constructive. He he brought that out in people, that ability to actually listen. Switch this up a little bit. In terms of recruiting fresh cuts and engaging like-minded alleys and, and mobilizing for events and rallies, 
Do you think that it could have happened as quickly as it has if we didn't have social media or the internet? Do you think doing it just face to face like they did in the old, like in the good old days, but do you think that that's something that has sped up the the growth and, and the recognition and mobilization because of internet, because of Facebook and Twitter or whatever else? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, there is no way a movement could grow as quickly word of mouth. Um, I just don't think it's possible. Um, the thing about using social media to look at, say, fresh cuts or to find people who are like-minded is they are there. Um, but we live in a, a day and age today where many communities aren't communities. Uh, you don't know your neighbor. Right. Um, you don't really know the people you work with. Uh, and it's unfortunate, but that's kind of the direction society is headed. Well, I already had that ingrained in me pretty well. Uh, but when you bring social media into it, it makes it easier to reach out to these kids. You know, especially in the South, uh, where I am, uh, they're so far spread out that it can be difficult to meet the people you want to meet. Not everybody can drive an hour to a major city to see a concert on the weekends. Right. Um, so it does make it easier to reach those people and, and give those people a sense of community or a sense of, of hope and that what they believe in, they want to participate in and want to be a part in does exist. Now, is there a moment when you think online stops working and real life action is going to become necessary to sustain the growth of the movement and to affect change? Absolutely. Um, you can talk online all day um, but there has to be a physical presence you know I can say I don't want this I don't want you bullying somebody um, or I can see you bullying somebody and I can step in and put a stop to it right uh, you know there has to be a, a physical side to this no ideal no true ideal can live in a, a medium like social media. It just cannot. It can thrive. It can spread. It can be well known, but it cannot survive. And that concludes my interview with Frank Fleming, who discussed how social media has had a dramatic impact and has changed the organization that he's been a part of for over 20 years. Two theories that are tested by the rise of internet activism is political process theory and resource management theory. Certainly the Arab Spring and the political unrest in Turkey and Spain were all reactions to the political elite, their corruption, and the inequities of wealth. No singular social theory can fully explain the advent of a viral call to arms that nets literally millions of bodies into the street. Political, class, and emotions mixed together in most instances. For instance, the two million citizens that just marched this month in Hong Kong. This surge grew quickly because of heavy social media use. And perhaps it's valid to say that the island having a less restrictive government than mainland China allowed for those in Hong Kong to fight the proposed extradition treaty to mainland. Their largely nonviolent and successful action stands in stark opposition to the fateful outcome in Tiananmen Square. However, on the other side of this argument is Occupy, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, 
and anti-racist movements. They often claim to be largely apolitical and contend that they have a moral outrage that they are addressing, one that should be addressed regardless of who you vote for. In our final reading, it is said that corporate bad actors and the resulting unequal distribution of wealth were listed as a growing reason that people are taking to first social media and then to the streets. When addressing resource mobilization theory, at the infancy of many of these online movements, very little is required. But Castell shows in his discussion of Occupy that as they grow, there is a need to open bank accounts, ensure safe, clean, sustainable camps, and also continue to mobilize their most important resource, the people in the camps, the unions, politicians, and celebrities that joined to protest. In closing, I think that social media is but a tool, and a very important free tool, with its access, neutrality, and ability to lend anonymity. However, it might speed up action and develop network connections. Castell shows that the true change happens as it always has in the streets. Such a never ends, it goes on and